Hello and welcome to Reframe Your Life. This is episode 125 and I'm your host, Sandy Reynolds. It's been a couple of years since I took a break from Reframe Your Life. We were in the middle of a pandemic and I had been recording many episodes with Patty Hall. We were interviewing incredible memoir writers and I hit a wall. I felt really burned out and I wanted to take a break and just step back. And little did I know it would be two years before I felt excited about recording an episode again. Today I'm bringing you a very special guest. I was excited to have an opportunity to interview her. And if you've been listening to Reframe Your Life over the years, you know that one of the most important conversations I like to have is around challenging our thinking when it comes to the messages of the culture around us. Today's guest is asking us to reframe middle age. Her name is Anne Douglas, and for years, for decades, she was Canada's most trusted writer on all things parenting. Now she's turning her attention to the glorious messiness that is midlife. Anne is the author of 26 nonfiction books, including many best-selling titles in the parenting category and a passionate and inspiring speaker who delivers keynote addresses and leads small group workshops at conferences and online events. Anne and her husband, Neil, live in rural Ontario, where she is hard at work on her first novel. This is the second podcast interview I've recorded with Anne Douglas. The first one didn't record, and it was an inspiring and fantastic episode. I know I've been away from podcasting for a little while, and I must have missed some sort of new setting in Zoom when it recorded, and I felt sick about it. I initially thought maybe I would just ghost her entirely and not even respond ever to her emails, but after a long walk, I decided I needed to own up to my failure, and I emailed Anne and explained what happened to her. She was so generous and offered to jump back on Zoom with me the following Monday, and we recorded a second episode. In some ways, I think the second episode helped get us to a place of feeling connected a little bit quicker. And we certainly had been through a bit of a relationship bump by that point with the podcast not recording and had found a way to work through that. And I really appreciated Anne's generosity. Let me tell you a little bit about her book. Navigating the Messy Middle is the title of her book, and it offers practical evidence-based strategies for thriving at midlife, coupled with the compelling stories of more than 100 midlife women. These women share their hard-won wisdom on everything from navigating worries and regrets to chasing after long-held hopes and dreams. Their advice spans all aspects of midlife, from health and relationships to career and finances while addressing other big picture issues that get at the heart of why middle life can be a particularly challenging stage for women. 
Navigating the messy middle looks beyond the easy self-help answers and simple negative stereotypes, celebrating midlife's unique messiness and giving readers the tools to imagine a new and better path forward. One of the things that I've been focusing on in the past two years is doing a certification in conscious aging. And I'm really mindful of the messages that women have from midlife on about their value in our culture. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to bring you this interview today. So I'm just going to get right to it and enjoy it. I also want to suggest that you subscribe to Reframe Your Life and that way you'll receive any episodes that I record in the future. I don't have a set schedule going into this next season. I will just be bringing you things that I think you will enjoy. So here's the interview. Good morning, Anne, and thank you for returning to Reframe Your Life. It was such a disaster for me last week when I noticed that the podcast hadn't recorded after we had such an engaging and wonderful conversation. I literally went and lay on the floor and I thought, oh my gosh, what do you do? And the irony of talking to someone about the messy middle of life and then messing something up wasn't lost on me. So thank you for coming back. Oh, Sandy, I mean, what could be a better way to start a week than with a bonus conversation with you? And um, as I said, when you emailed me in despair last week, like you were doing me a huge favor by having a conversation about my book. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. And who among us has not had one of these moments where, you know, technology humbles us and brings us to our knees sometimes, right? Yes. And so and One of my areas as I age where I feel most uh, defensive, I think, is around the message about middle age and older people and technology. And I work very hard to be a person who is fairly current on technology. I realize that unless it's your career, you can't be completely 100% up on all the new technology, but I work really hard at it. And so... Uh, I just thought, why don't we just start with that conversation around fear and middle age and what people, especially women, experience and what are some of the fears that you think we go into middle age facing? Well, I think that there is so much dismissal of, you know, our relevance and our ability to keep up with the culture that I find really off-putting at times. I mean, um, you know, those horrible jokes that go around social media that either say we have no fashion sense or we're technologically inept. And, you know, I, I mean, I am not like a technical pro, but I've managed to teach myself how to use blogging software, video editing software, audio editing software. And I don't think I'm alone because when I look at the output of content produced by middle-aged women, like we are a force in the culture. And, uh, you know, as one of the women I interviewed for my book said, you know, we're sort of like almost like undercover agents, right? People don't realize what an impact we're having because we're sometimes uh, disregarded on that front. And I liked her attitude of using it as a superpower. (laughs) (laughs) I like that attitude too. I think that we do have a lot of strength and power as women as we age. And it's um, something we have to step into and 
really embrace you know it's a different power from youth but it's uh nonetheless i think a power to be reckoned with when we put our our minds to something individually and collectively so you interviewed over 100 women for this book and so tell me about that what what surprised you in those conversations well, I think the nicest surprise was the fact that all of these women were willing to, you know, to share their hopes and dreams and the contents of their hearts with me, a stranger, uh, you know, via Zoom, because most of the, the interviews were done in the early months of the pandemic. And I feel like maybe people were craving human contact in the same way that I was. And that's why they were so generous with their time. And also, like 2020 in particular was a time of deep reflection for a lot of people, really um, the forced pause in the culture, right? And just being able to take stock and, and to think about what's working, what's not. I, of course, being, you know, a bit of an idealist who gets her heart broken on a regular basis, I thought, okay, we're going to have this moment of rupture. And then we're going to come out, you know, so collective, so compassionate. So part of the work for me in the last year or two has been coping with a slightly broken heart that things aren't quite as, as wonderful. Well, they're not really that wonderful at all right now, <laughs> you know, coming out of this thing. So I think that that is partly a midlife thing, realizing I don't have endless time on the planet and wanting to see progress in my lifetime that doesn't feel like it's constantly being pushed backward. And I, on really optimistic days, I say, okay, well, if I look at what it was like to be a woman in the 1970s, like a young woman, um, you know, just coming into sort of being a teenager, and I contrast it with now, there has been a lot of progress, but there's also been some significant backsliding in so many ways. So I guess I just thought that things would be so much better than they are by the time I was at the this age and sometimes I just get very discouraged about that but you know it's always yeah. catch me five minutes from now and and the winds may have changed and I might be back to feeling optimistic again but you know some days are hard right yes yes definitely and I was looking through your book again and there there is really so much depth in this book I think that uh for people who are reading it you know it's not um it's not just a light fluffy read. And I love at the at the end how you have this section where people can go more in depth in some of the conversations. And I was looking at that before we got on the call and thinking about, yeah, that it's like uh, a work, work that we do at this age. It's not just something I think earlier in my life, I felt like I just showed up and I just, you know, I had kids and I figured out how to have kids and how to be a mom and sort of, but there's something different here at this stage of life that I think um, requires a little bit more attention. And I, I would just wonder how, what you think about that. Yeah, I think because we have the benefit of a lot of lived experience and, you know, learning, observing, making a conscious effort to learn things, I think we really have um, a pretty broad and expansive view. And it's pretty deep as well. Like, I always feel like I'm connecting the dots between who I was, who I am, and who I hope to become because. I don't feel like this is a period of stagnancy at all. I feel like it's 
almost like my brain is on fire some days because I want to learn so much. I have so many questions. I'm so curious, which is amazing. And I think that having come out of those very busy parenting years, I had uh, four kids under the age of nine at one point. At one point, I had three kids under three and a half. I don't necessarily recommend that spacing. It was intense. And so it was hard to get five minutes to breathe, let alone think. And I remember many years where me, someone who adores books, could hardly read more than two pages of a book without falling asleep at night. And now I have more time and space in my life so I can, you know, really t take a deep dive into things that are interesting to me. Um, so it, it feels like a really exciting time. And also it can be a little overwhelming because I now realize I'm never going to get to read all the books, right? Yes. <laughs> you can't even do it in, a, in an entire lifetime. So maybe I need to dive into different kinds of materials. So I feel like I'm learning across categories in the bookstore. Yes. At uh, any given time, I have like 50 holds on the at the library. I just, I go through and I put things on hold and yeah, I feel the same way. And then I get 10 at a time and I'm like, I can't read these. You know? <laughs> um, one of the things that you say is this isn't the, our parents' middle age or, you know, the, the middle season that uh, many women are in right now is different from this season when our parents went through it. What what are some of the big differences? Well, I think, first of all, um, there are many ways to be a midlife woman today. I think there's like, you know, a much broader range of options. I mean, you could be if you chose, and you had grandchildren, you could be doing the traditional image of the grandma, you know, knitting sweaters by the fire or something like that. But also you could be just about to launch your own tech startup, or you could be going back to school to study something, or you could be doing um, a full-time volunteer enterprise. Like there are just so many different paths through midlife. And for a lot of women, um, it might not even be like you have one monolithic experience of midlife because midlife lasts a long time it could be from you know, depending on like your roles and your you know all the your life circumstances it could be from like 40 to 65 it could be that big and 25 years is a big chunk of our lives so when I look back to when I was 40 um, I had like a million preteens and teens and now I'm like 59 and all of my children have like left the nest and you know even writing wise I've, I've been in transition from one kind of writing to another kind of writing so when when I think back on my midlife I feel like I had multiple midlife experiences yeah so let's just uh, talk about that how do you define midlife well, it depends if you're a researcher or just like an average human on the street, because researchers will sort of um, give it a slightly broader envelope. They'll say 40 to 65, but they really emphasize it is about role transitions. So having if you had kids, having your kids leave home, it can feel like you're starting a new chapter in your life. Um, if you had kids later in life, you know, you could be... Um, like a mother in her late 40s who has very young children, or you could be somebody who's packing up the moving van to help your child move to their first apartment. Like it could be any of those kind of things. And when you ask average people on the street, they tend to say midlife is something like 40 to 59. I've also noticed an interesting cultural difference because I, I, you know, read a ton of materials when I was researching the book. And in the UK, a lot of people are very worried about midlife issues at 30, 35, which I find really interesting that, you know, even just another major English speaking culture 
uh, there can be a difference around that. And a lot of anxiety, like some of the most intense fear-based messaging around aging, I found in a lot of UK materials. That's that's interesting, the cultural differences. Do you think there's also differences between men and women at midlife? Oh, totally. I mean, I'm rolling my eyes, which you're, <laughs> everybody's going to have to imagine me rolling my eyes. But it's just like, it's so unjust, right? That men become more dignified and sophisticated and they add wisdom. And women apparently are you know, looking older or obsolete or should just, you know, exit stage left. Like we get very different sets of, of messaging and even just, you know, all the high profile stories in the media in the past year about, you know, a woman being ungraciously pushed, pushed off stage from her career versus other men in the media having been vetted or celebrated for like an entire year before they chose to leave it was like a year-long goodbye for some people and they were of comparable prestige and profile so yeah I think that there's so much work to be done around that uh, you talk in the book about or about the seven biggest myths and misconceptions about midlife and I wanted to talk a little bit about them one of them is that a midlife crisis is inevitable or that you're doomed to feel miserable? Where does that come from? <laughs> well, it really is anchored in um, a very narrow pocket of experience. There was a book written in the 1970s that basically relied on conversations with midlife executive men who were feeling miserable and who wanted to be interviewed for a book about like the midlife crisis, right? And then um, the media loved the stories and the popular culture really picked up on it. So we had all these movies and sitcoms and novels with the midlife crisis as a plot. But really, only maybe 10% of people actually have anything remotely resembling a midlife crisis. If you ask people who say they had a midlife crisis when they had it, they'll say any time between the age of 17 and 75, which is a very <laughs> broad definition of midlife. It makes the whole idea kind of meaningless. And I think that the happiness stuff really worries me because there have been a number of high profile media stories over the years about how your happiness levels supposedly bottom out at age 47. And that has been largely debunked because researchers have said, you know, if they were looking at sort of like different people born at different times, as opposed to following the same group of people over time, where you actually can see a trend in their life, like how did their life play out? And that if if they drill down even further, they're looking at sort of like a narrow definition of happiness as opposed to one that's more about, you know, meaning and purpose and all of those kind of things. And I guess what worries me the most is the idea that somebody might like look at that research be feeling rot really rotten or miserable themselves and think, well, this is just the way it's supposed to be. What do I expect? I should just settle for, you know, things not being great when really maybe there's a health issue. Maybe there's some life circumstance you could change. Like, don't just think that middle age means settling for, for something that's not great physically, emotionally in your relationships or any of it. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's wise. Uh, I also find just informally, not so much research driven, but the people in my circle, we find ourselves more content, you know, which I think is a, a form of happiness in a way. 
Yeah, I think you really know yourself well by the time you get to this age. And so it can be a matter of the satisfaction that comes from not sort of feeling like, who am I? How do I fit into the world? You have answers to some of those. You might still be like tweaking the, you know, part three to come. Um, but that is really reassuring. And also, we've lived through hard times by the time we get to this life stage. So when bad things happen, like at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was, you know, doom scrolling like everybody else and completely freaked out, I could say to myself, I've been through really hard stuff. Like, you know, I've been through the stillbirth of a baby and I came through that. I've been through a house fire and I came through that. And I knew myself to be resourceful enough that I was going to figure out like, what are the things that I need to be paying attention to? How can I care for and support other people? And that was sort of like the lens that I went into it with just being able to draw upon some, some previous experience. I think if the pandemic had happened when I was, you know, 30 with a million small children and not having a lot of coping skills yet, that would have been a lot harder for me personally. So, so there is something to say about having clocked a few experiences over the decades. Oh, for sure. My daughter had three under five when the pandemic hit, she had a two month old with the first lockdown. And I felt like the biggest part of my job at that point was to help her through it because she was just on meltdown constantly. <laughs> like it was, it was hard, you know, you don't have the sleep behind you because you're up with kids. And it was just, it was a hard time I felt for young, young moms. Yeah, really scary and really overwhelming. And because so much of my earlier work was on parenting, I was speaking at a lot of parenting events over the course of the pandemic, virtually, of course, because that's what, you know, everything has been for the past few years. But um, I don't think I've ever seen a higher level of exhaustion and burnout in parents as I have, especially in 2021. That seemed to be like the really hard year. And I felt like parents had been treading water for about a you know a year and a year and a half at that point with no real end in sight because there was not yet a vaccine for very young children and you know I just I, I any parent who's sort of beating themselves up for not having been the perfect parent at every moment of the pandemic I just send them so much self-compassion because I can't think of any other time when parents were asked to do so much with so little available support it really was you know, it, it was like both a marathon and a sprint all at once because it was intense and it was lasting forever. Yeah. Okay. So another one of the myths that I think is really important to talk about, and there's a lot of um, secrecy around it, is finances at midlife. And this belief that we should have it all together financially and that we should be set. And uh, I think there's a lot of shame for people that aren't there. And um what did you talk about and discover in your research with women around their financial situation at midlife? Well, for sure, for sure, just what you're saying, like that sense of shame that obviously everybody else around me is ready to, you know, buy their yacht or go on their world cruise. So I've clearly been doing it wrong. But no, the majority of people are feeling like a little bit shaky financially. And how could they not be? I mean, we had the global financial crisis, we've had the pandemic, um, we had the rise of precarious employment in recent decades. So you could have a really good job with 
like no safety net, like no, no way to recover if you have some, one of life's curveballs lobbed at you, which many people have had at this point, right? And the fact that women in particular still do the majority of paid and low paid care work in our culture, it means if it's your day job, you probably can't even save any money because you're barely getting by if you're not financially sinking. And even if you have like a bit more money, you may be providing financial support to like the up and coming generation, whether you have kids or not, maybe you're, you know, your nieces and nephews or, or other people in your life. And also you could be helping to support up to two generations older than you because um, it's just a really hard time for everybody financially. And I think that because so much of the work women do is undervalued and underpaid and we're more susceptible to disability, and we're more likely to be, you know, asked to leave the workforce to help support other people as they age. It's like, it's just, it's not a personal decision thing. It is a systemic problem that we really need to get serious about addressing. I'm going to try not to get too grumpy, but I'm so tired of like the perennial promises to women that never get followed through on by policymakers. Like, um, I shouldn't have decades of waiting on some of these issues to get resolved, right? Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad that you we've addressed that because I think even for women to just hear that is important that they're not alone. They're not the only ones who haven't had some who've had uh, what might be perceived as a failure by not having all of their finances together by a, some mythical day in their, in their life. Yes. Yes. And I I remember a conversation with one woman in particular for the book, and she said that um, she had had both a divorce and a business bankruptcy and rapid succession. And now she was trying to figure out like, what kind of work can I be doing in my 70s? She was working in childcare and felt like she wasn't going to be able to carry that on indefinitely because that's pretty intense work, yeah. right? And maybe moving to a retail environment would be something that she could do to, to help pay the bills. But you know, in what universe is this okay, where people are having to sort of map out without a choice, this wasn't like, yay, I want to work in a retail store. It was more like I have to do this to survive. That is not okay. Yeah, I just think it's it's really important to talk about it. It goes along with expectations as well. And you talk about expectations. Uh, my husband wrote a book on expectations called What Do You Expect? The Question You Need to Answer. It really gets into this whole idea of how important our expectations are in um, our experience of life, you know, whether we're happy or sad or angry or disappointed, it often is rooted in what we expected in the first place. And um, many women have these expectations at midlife. And expectations that aren't met often lead us to disappointment or anger. And that's something that people don't like to feel. Um, what did, what do you think are some of the expectations that women have going into midlife and maybe we've touched on a few but if there's something else that we haven't touched on yeah for sure oh like I almost feel like I have a laundry list of them here <laughs> um, I thought I'd have everything figured out by now feeling like you know you're supposed to just feel like a grown-up all of a sudden when some people told me that they still feel very young at heart and they still feel like they're trying to figure out stuff or make peace with earlier traumas that you know are continuing to affect them into the present. I didn't affect I didn't expect to be working this hard at this age. I remember one woman saying like I thought I'd be able to coast a little, not 
not, you know, just put your feet up and do nothing, but just not feel like you were constantly having to, to fight to not lose uh, career ground. I thought I'd be able to afford to retire or at least have retirement on the horizon. I didn't expect to have so many people needing me. I thought this was supposed to be my time. And I think what's so harmful about these expectations, and I know you and I have had a side conversation about this, is when you have that gap between sky high expectations and low resources available to meet that. And that's why, like, you know, during the pandemic, burnout was such a huge issue for younger parents, because here you're supposed to still be a great parent. And guess what? Now you can't even go to the playground. Yes. (laughs) So really, really hard stuff. And I think it really, it carries over into midlife too, because we might think we're supposed to be living our best life. I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean? Like we're supposed to be having this magical existence and yet there could be all these other worries and concerns and health challenges showing up on the horizon. Yeah. I think underlying it, there's this message that there's a way to do it right. Like life, that if we do the right steps at the right time, then we get some result that we've been sold. And too often, I think it's like the way things are packaged nowadays. Like I can tell you, publishers love it. If you can sell them a book, like seven easy steps to the perfect midlife. I was never going to write that book because I feel like it's much more complicated and nuanced than that. But people love a formula, right? And we're busy. I get it. Like we, we want someone to do all the thinking and give us this nice, neatly digested thing. But it when you when you think that it's supposed to be that easy, it like reminds me of, you know, those little little books they used to sell in the supermarket, maybe they still do like 30 days to thinner thighs in a little book that was like 40, <laughs> 40 pages, and it was supposed to magically solve your problems. Like none of those things ever work. You have to find your own path and you have to find your own tools and strategies. And I think that's what I really like about this stage is that we have figured out what works for us and what doesn't work for us. Uh, you know, and Like for me, um, I have to take evenings and weekends off. I used to be able to work like all the time if I, if I was on a, like a deadline, but now I know, like I have a budget of so many words I can write a week. And if I use them all up on Monday, it's no point. Like my brain will not be replenishing the store of words until next Monday anyways. So why not pace myself a little? Um, one other thing before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about is relationships. And there's a section in your book that deals with relationships. Does anything shift for us in midlife when it comes to friendship? Well, I think that the research shows that we <clears throat> we tend to become a little more selective. We We recognize that we don't have endless time or energy. So instead of like trying to maintain, you know, 200 friendships via holiday cards or something, we start like pulling in a little and maybe just investing more in the relationships that mean the most to us. And also there can be a lot of loneliness, like sometimes circumstances will cause you to move to a different place and you don't have decade long relationships with the people around you. So I recently moved and one thing I did was I sent out a letter of introduction to my new neighbors just to say, hey, we moved into this place. And, uh, you know, here's a little bit about my husband and I and here are our hobbies and interests. And here's how to reach us if you have an emergency and you need to get in touch with your neighbors. And um, I sent out three letters and two people wrote back, which feels like, you know, hey, I won the lottery. Yeah, Um, because it is just nice to know other people on the ground. Like, I 
I, I'll never be the kind of person who wants to, you know, meet people for a walk or for for drinks or anything like that on a regular basis. It's just not my vibe. I'm very much an introvert. But it would be nice to know when I walk out on the street. Oh, yeah, there's the family that lives in that house, you know, that kind of thing. So. Oh, I love that idea. I'm going to um, use that idea. I think it's a, a great way to build community. And yeah, it's it's. I've never heard of anyone doing that. So thank you for sharing that. I, I really like that. So in closing, a few questions I like to ask everyone. It's what book do you, the first one is what book other than your own are you recommending or do you like to recommend to people more than any other book? Well, there's this magical book that I have given to people of all generations. I think one year I, I gave it to all of my kids and I also gave it to my dad. And it's just like a really deep, wonderful book, like one of those books that, you know, you're going to read a thousand times in your lifetime. And if I had to literally take one book to a desert island, this is the book I'd pack. And it's called One Long River of Song notes on wonder it's written by um, a beautiful writer named brian doyle who tragically died at around age 60 and so the people who loved him he he was clearly so loved because his family all the editors that had worked with him all the all over the years came together to create this anthology of his best writing and it is magical so i would highly recommend that book to every person on the planet okay i'm going i am going to locate that book as soon as i get off this interview so thank you and what are you working on next you alluded to a little bit of a change there in your writing yes. so what's next yes well i've decided i'm pretty much done with nonfiction book writing it's like it's like an exercise for burnout and bankruptcy, basically. It's like very appealing <laughs> lifestyle for anybody who's considering this. Um, so I think I'll go for something that's even less lucrative, which is writing a novel. Um, I'm enrolled in a program through Story Studio Chicago. There was um, a call to apply to be part of the, um, an online cohort last summer. And I thought maybe I should apply, maybe I shouldn't. And I thought, I'm just going to try because if you don't try, you don't get accepted. And it was pretty competitive. I guess about 130 of us applied, 16 of us got into the program. And so I'm being mentored by um, novelist Rebecca Mackay through the process of writing my first novel. And it is amazing. Like um, I'm in community with these other people who are like, seriously brilliant writers and we keep each other motivated to keep working on our projects and so on so um what I love most about it is I don't feel any pressure to write a best-selling novel like I just want to write a novel in my lifetime and I'm already 30,000 words towards the 90,000 I really need to have to have like a novel um and if nothing ever happens with it that's totally fine it's like an exercise in discovery and what feels like creative joy just the the joy of creating something. And um, my method has been to just, just sit down and try and add more words all the time, right? I have like a rough outline in my head and every day I'm sort of spiraling forward to read the last couple of paragraphs, say, oh yeah, now I remember where the person was and then build on that. So I had to hand in a hundred pages of my novel last week to my instructor. And so I had to read it to make sure it was reasonably coherent, right? And it was a magical experience just reading this stuff and thinking like, this is a really interesting book. Oh, my heavens, it came from my own head. I don't even remember writing this. <laughs> it's 
lost in that in that creative thing. That's what made me want to write when I was 12. I have a vivid picture of me sitting under a tree at my family cottage, writing in a spiral notebook and knowing I wanted to be a writer. And so 12 year old me would be just thrilled to know, yes, you did get to grow up to be a writer. I also wanted children. Yes, you got to have children. And Yes, you get to live in a natural area with trees because I have a deep relationship with nature as well. And my my recent move to this part of the province, the Ottawa Valley, it means that some of my new best friends are trees. And speaking of connection, just to wrap up, where can our my listeners connect with you? Sure. Um, I guess the easiest place to find all my social media coordinates would be just to go to my website, which is Ann Douglas, A-N-N-D-O-U-G-L-A-S dot C-A. And you'll see that, you know, I spend way too much time on Twitter still. I'm on Instagram. I tolerate Facebook. I'm sometimes on LinkedIn. Yes, I do play favorites with social media platforms. <laughs> and um, I'm starting to learn Mastodon. Like I, I have two different accounts there. One that is very much sort of, you know, sort of like social justice, environmental issues, that kind of conversation. And one that's a bit more mainstream, but I haven't yet sort of gotten like felt like I found my people really on Mastodon, which is why I keep gravitating back to Twitter, getting frustrated, (laughs) etc. But I I am very active on social media, in other words, and I I do feel like there's so many good things about social media, it's allowed me to have so many amazing conversations with with women and with creative types that I don't want to lose that. Thank you very much. This has been a delightful conversation both times. And I I look forward to uh, connecting somehow in the future as well. So thank you. Anne. I would love that, Sandy. Thank you so much for the gift twice over. And it truly was, you know, a gift twice over Two really fun and inspiring conversations. Thank you.